So we're just going to start again by kind of recapping where we've been. Um, we did that last week too. So again, I'll, I'll be I'll be brief as I as I survey the audience here. I think we were all here last week. Um, so so I don't think I need to be as thorough uh, as maybe as I was. But just again, it's good. Just a good refresher. Just a good reminder as to where we've been. So if we think back to to Ruth chapter one, we read in verse in chapter one verse one that the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth takes place in the time when the judges ruled. Okay, in the days when the judges ruled Israel. And we've remembered and, and thought about what life was like during the judges. It was a difficult period, a dark period in Israel's history. Um, where, as it says it, throughout the book of Judges, everyone just did whatever they wanted. And guys, that's not a nice place to be. When everyone is so selfish, when everyone is so self-centered, when everybody just does whatever they want to do, it's a horrible place to be. And the book of Judges shows that. That when everybody does whatever they want to do, things are awful. People take advantage of one another. People abuse one another. People are self-seeking. And it ends up ruining relationships. It ruins um, you know, whole family dynamics. It ruins people's lives. This is where the book of Ruth steps into. And one of the things that we, we see is that from chapter one, we step into the brokenness of this time. But not only the brokenness of this time, but a very unique brokenness in that we step into, in the first five verses, we step into the lives of Naomi and Ruth in particular, but also Orpah and, and their whole family and the 10 years of hell that they experienced of absolute misery. Their whole lives falling apart. Dreams shattered. And it all happens in five verses. <laughs> and it's tough. Chapter one, I don't know about you guys, chapter one was tough for me to process and to think about. Naomi and Ruth are two broken women. They've lost everything. As Naomi says, she's gone from full to empty, from pleasant to bitter. Naomi is crushed. Her entire life has fallen apart. And it seems as if even her faith is in shambles. Now, she hasn't become an atheist. No, she just blames God for all of her problems. She says, God has done this to me. Right? And we process this. We walked through this. That sometimes we feel that way. And what ends up happening for Naomi is Ruth comes alongside her. And again, that famous phrase, you know, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. This commitment that Ruth makes to God and to Naomi. We see faith at work. Ruth comes alongside Naomi. Ruth picks her up and carries her when she is broken and they walk together into the unknown. That's chapter one. So while chapter one focuses on suffering, chapter two reminds us of God's grace and his kindness. We see that God is everywhere at work even though the characters in the story can't see it and even though we can't always see it. And the author did this by, by introducing that phrase as chance chanced upon. In other words, it is no coincidence that this happens. The things that happen, that Ruth and Naomi, they return during the barley harvest, that Ruth ends up into the fields of somebody who is a close relative. Right? All of this stuff is no accident. 
And we see that this is how, like, that God deals with Ruth and Naomi incredibly generously with grace and with kindness as they end up in the field of Boaz who shows incredible generosity and grace. And we saw that this is how God deals with us as well. He is unexpectedly generous. That he cares for those who who feel unimportant, unloved, unwelcomed, undeserving, and seemingly insignificant. And then last week as we came to chapter 3, we focused on the idea of how faith and, and action go hand in hand. Right, that we see the actions of Ruth, her boldness and willingness to to do what Naomi asked her to do, to go to Boaz, to get into put herself into a dangerous, awkward, precarious situation in order, and she steps out in faith, trusting that God will care for her. And we find the character of Boaz and of of Ruth is of, of top level, but that we see faith and action going hand in hand. And we talked about how faith is often most deeply formed in the cauldron of difficulty and silence, that when faith is all we have to cling to, it's usually a time of of great growth in our lives for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And then we talked about how and saw how the chesed, right? The kindness, the, the loving kindness, the faithful loyalty, the faithful love that Ruth shows Naomi, that Boaz shows to Ruth, that that chesed points us to the chesed of God. That this is what God is like, only better. This is what the character of God is like. And we even looked at Exodus 34, verse 6, where it talks about God's faithful love, loyalty, and kindness. God's chesed. That is who he is and how he expects his people to be. And so we found in the story then that, that Boaz agrees to marry Ruth. But we get this bit of foreshadowing at the end of chapter 3. So he says, sorry, it's in the middle of chapter 3. He says in verse 12, But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. It introduces a bit of a a plot twist. What's going to happen? There's somebody else who's actually more closely related than Boaz. Because this whole time as we've been reading the story, we think Boaz is the guy. He's the one. He's the one that's going to marry Ruth. He's the one who's going to redeem Ruth. He's the one who, who is the, the kinsman redeemer, the closest relative. And then all of a sudden we learn he's not. I think, yeah, literarily, isn't that called foreshadowing? That perhaps we may come across this again. As Boaz says, he'll take care of things. So here we are at Ruth chapter 4. So we're just going to read it. It's only, we're only going to read 12 verses this morning. Well, 12 and a half verses this morning. Okay? And, and we're going to do a lot less stops along the way. So uh, let's go ahead and just begin, begin to read. Chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned 
came by. Okay, I said we weren't gonna take as many stops. First stop. <laughs> All right, Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. This is where business is done in the ancient Near East. Okay, the town gate, like that's the place to be, that's the hangout spot. That's where you go if you have a court case, if you have anything you need to solve. Um, you know, and like, so like a lot of the elders and things like that, people, they would have hung out at the town gate, right? That's like, that's the place where, where all the action happens. So that's why Boaz goes to the town gate, all right? Short, like I said, short aside there. But it just explains why Boaz goes to the town gate. Now, also we find this bit of, uh, and it just so happened, just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz goes to the family, goes to the gate, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, here comes the guy he's looking for. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Let's stop there. Now, most of us probably know the story. Maybe you read, maybe you didn't know the story before, but you read it like after the first week or something. But, but imagine yourself being the original reader of the story for the very first time. This introduces a serious plot twist, right? Every good story has a moment like this, right? Every good romantic comedy or whatever, you know, like whatever, it has that moment where all of a sudden you're like, everything is going just the way it should. Boaz, he's the man, he's gonna do, you know, everything. And then all of a sudden somebody else enters the story, right? And here's this guy, we don't know this guy. And in fact, the story doesn't even name him. His name, it says here, friend, right? If you look in verse two, it says friend. The Hebrew word there is actually Polomi Almoni, which is kind of funny. It rhymes. It's meant to rhyme. Like, you know, like Poloni Almoni, okay? Um, it means so-and-so. <laughs> like, quite literally, if you were to directly translate it, like, they don't give him a name. Like, it's just like, old boy, your man. Like, maybe your man would be the way we would translate this in Irish. Like, and so your man shows up, right? And he like, like, that's it. We don't give him a name. It's just like, your man, okay? So... And Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, man. <laughs> I don't know. But like, okay, so he doesn't even get a name. And all of a sudden he's introduced in the story and he's like, sure, I'll marry her. Or it's, it's, no, he didn't say I'll marry her. That's not true. I'm like ruining the story already. So he, he, he says, land? Yeah, I'll take land. That'll be great. And she's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this is supposed to go. Boaz is supposed to get, get everything. Not your man. <laughs> like, okay, and so then the story goes on. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Ah, Boaz had something up his sleeve. He's no fool then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied. What a jerk. But anyway, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. Man, 
What an unlikable so-and-so. Anyway, now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nations of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. Now, there are a few things in there that we'll unpack next week just because it fits in better with the second half, like the blessings there. We'll, un- we'll unpack those because they're kind of a little bit strange, um, especially if you know the story of Tamar and Judah. Um, it doesn't at first feel like a compliment or a blessing, um, but, but we'll unpack those next week. So just, you know, if you were just really wanting answers today, sorry, come back next week. Um, Mm-hmm. To be continued. So, an interesting fact about this chapter. In the 12 verses we read, the word redemption or redeemer or redeem shows up eight times. And in all of chapter four, it actually shows up nine times. Now, if you remember back to your secondary school English class, English literature class, repetition usually means something is important, right? Okay, this is important. <laughs> and in fact, if you went through, even in your own English translation, and you just counted all the times that it, the book of Ruth mentions redemption, it's a lot. I actually, I didn't write the number down, so I don't know. I have it highlighted in my Bible, and I can see there's a lot of highlights. It's a good number of times. This is an important theme in the book of Ruth, but especially in chapter 4, because we see it in action. We see Ruth being redeemed. The book of Ruth is all about redemption. What we find in these verses is a reversal of circumstances. And it continues into the rest of the chapter. But like I said, we're just breaking it up um, for all of our sakes. We're breaking it up into two weeks. But like we find a reversal of circumstances. Boaz rescues Ruth and Naomi. He rescues Mahlon's family name. That isn't that important to us. But in the days when this story was written, your name and your legacy was everything. And let's be honest. All of us want to leave some kind of legacy behind us. And for people in the ancient times, your name was your legacy, passing on your family name. So for Mahlon to die and to have no legacy was horrible. And so here Boaz, he redeems Mahlon's family name. He redeems Elimelech's family name. 
not just the property so that it stays in the family, but he's willing to redeem the family line. He's willing to redeem Naomi. Boaz rescues Ruth and Naomi. They came to Bethlehem with no prospects. They came to Bethlehem with no hope. They came to the land of bread with no bread. They were broken. They were helpless. They were empty. They were bitter. But now God has changed their lot through Boaz. And I was just thinking about this, like with Ruth being so focused on this idea of redemption. And again, what we found is the story is not about Boaz. It's not about Ruth. It's not about Naomi. The story is about God. And the way God redeems his people. But as I was thinking about this idea of redemption, what I was thinking of is like all of us, I think, are drawn to stories of redemption. Like it's one of the, it's like, it's what makes this story so beautiful. This going from, from empty, sorry, from full to empty and back to full again. Right? The story of redemption. We are drawn to these stories. Redemption is, is a powerful motif or a, a powerful theme. Because I think we feel the need for redemption acutely. I think we all feel that need for redemption both in our world and even in our own individual lives, we feel that sense of like something needs to be, something isn't right and it needs to be fixed. We look at the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of our circumstances, the brokenness of our families and our friends and, and maybe even people we don't know that well. We look at, you know, we read the news and just see the brokenness in our world and we long for redemption. Redemption is, is one of the most common themes in literature and in movies because I think at the core of our being, we want it, we long for it. Yet what we know is that it always kind of just, in our world, I think, from a worldly perspective, as Christians, obviously we can say, like, okay, we have a, with a different story, which is obviously where I'm going with this as well. But, but I think from a worldly perspective, it's, it's like that carrot on the end of a stick. It's always just out of reach. We may taste some sense of redemption, but then again, we just experience the brokenness all over again. That there may be a temporary reprieve, or maybe it's sometimes certain things are made right, but not everything. We long for all things to be made right, a holistic redemption, not just a temporary or a momentary redemption, not just a, a singular redemption, but a worldly, where all creation is redeemed. I think as human beings, we long for that. Redemption is never fully resolved, and so there's always that continual need for redemption. Redemption is hard to find, I think, in a narcissistic culture. Now, we won't, we won't stay in the depressed Redemption is hard to find in a narcissistic culture forever, okay? I promise you that, like, we'll get to the gospel and the good news, uh, you know, <laughs> in due course. But let's just stay here for a moment. I want to stay here for a moment because I want to come back to your man, so-and-so, Palomi Almoni. I said that we were reading the story. Like, as you read it, I don't know about you guys. I can't help feeling like this guy is a narcissistic jerk. 
he's, he's not a good person. Like, as you read the story, he's not a likable, even though he's like a very flat character, he just kind of shows up, he gets no name, he gets, like, he's not a likable character. The things that he says, you're like, you're awful. And yet I think, I think he's actually a very relatable character. So-and-so is what, again, people smarter than me who study literature would say is a foil, not like aluminum or a tin foil, aluminum, if you wish, as well, tin foil, not that kind of foil, but a foil as in like a character who emphasizes or highlights the traits of another character. That as we look at how awful <laughs> your man is, we see how great Boaz is, right? That's kind of his purpose in the story. <laughs> Boaz is everything that so-and-so, Poloni Almoni, is not. Boaz is loyal. Boaz is selfless. Boaz is kind. He's faithful. He's loving. Boaz embodies chesed. He embodies what the Jews would have said called Torah. Right? The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, which means instructions. Sometimes we translate it law, but it means instructions. It means what it looks like to be a faithful follower of God. For the Jewish person, it's what it looked like to be a faithful follower of God. In the Torah, or in the instructions, we still find the character of God, right? Even for those of us who live on this side of Jesus, like we still find the character of God. And so we find like Boaz embodies what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Yahweh. But so-and-so is the opposite which is why I think he doesn't get a name. Boaz knew his name. It's not like he didn't know his name. But the author chooses to leave it out. And I think he chooses to leave it out on purpose. He's selfish. He's self-centered. I mean, like, let's just, let's just think about this for a moment. You're Ruth. You're at the city gate, and a man says, sure, I'll redeem the land. And then Boaz says, now, just know, there's, remember Ruth, and he goes, never mind, I don't want it. This is the closest relative that Ruth has, that Naomi has. This is the guy that should have stepped up. This is the guy, because everybody knew Naomi was in town. Everybody. Small town. With it comes every, you know, everybody knows everything, right? Small town, Ruth and Naomi roll into town. He knows she's there. Does he reach out to her and say, hey, come to my field? No. Does he say, let me take care of you? No. Does he say, I'm the nearest kinsman redeemer. Let me redeem your land? No. Now when Boaz says, hey, do you want Naomi's land? Okay, I'll take it. And then when he finds out that he might not get to keep it forever, and he might have to take Ruth along with him, with the land, no thanks, I'm, I'm out. There's like a, I think a, I don't know, as I like read that, I feel there's, there's even a, a hurt in that. This guy is self-centered and he thinks about no one really but himself and his own, his own legacy. 
Now, there's a question in verse 5 as to how we translate this. So there, there is some difficulty in, in translating Hebrew into English, but there's also some, some difficulty here in, in that there's a few little textual variants. Now, they don't change the meaning of the text necessarily, like the outcome, but there's a couple of ways we can look at verse 5. So in verse 5, Boaz says, Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. So, the, this idea of... Uh, sorry, your, your translation may actually translate it a little bit differently than the New Living does, does here. Where he says, requires that you marry Ruth. It can also be translated, and yours may say, you also acquire Ruth. Okay? But there's another way that you could translate it. It could also be translated, I acquire Ruth. As in what Boaz says to this man is, fine, you redeem the land, you'll acquire the land, I'll acquire Ruth. Now, either way, like I said, now, then there's also, sorry, third option here. Another variation reads, you also buy it from Ruth. In any case, what is happening is your man, so-and-so, Poloni Almoni, is being reminded that Ruth is in the picture. Because here's the way land purchases worked in Israel, okay? And this is important, believe me, trust me, this is important in understanding the story, okay? This isn't just a complete rabbit trail. Family, like land was to stay in the family, okay? So if you had, like your land was your land and it was to stay in your family. And if somebody died, then the redeemer could come along, a family relative could come along and purchase the land. But if a child came from the family, you know, if the family that owned the land, that had sold the land on, had an heir, then they would inherit the land. Okay? So here's, here's, here's what's going on, and maybe this will help make it more sense if I wasn't, like, make more sense of it if I wasn't totally clear. In our situation, Ruth does not have any children, but she could. And if this guy buys the land, and then Ruth has a kid, guess who gets the land when so-and-so dies? Not his kids. Ruth's kids. And so he says, sorry, it's not financially advantageous for me. Never mind, I don't want it. And so that's what we find. Like I said, he is the opposite of Boaz. And I think it's easy to look at that guy and to say, man, he's awful. And he is. <laughs> but I almost think Boaz, in a way, is our foil. Because <laughs> I think as we read this story, one of the things that, that Boaz and so-and-so's relationship here does <coughs> is it exposes our own selfishness and our own narcissistic tendencies. And I was just thinking, before we get like talking about our own narcissistic tendencies, I was just kind of thinking about the so-and-sos in our life. 
Most of us, I imagine, have been around long enough that there, we've had our own Poloni Almonis in our life. Our own so-and-sos. Our own your mans. Him who shall not be named. You know, or, or whatever. We've had them in our lives. People that should have been there for us. People that should have shown up. People that in our brokenness should have been the first ones by our side and they weren't. People who could have helped us. People who knew our circumstances and chose to, chose to take advantage of us rather than be there at our time of need. People who we should have been able to trust. People who we should have been able to turn to and look to who betrayed us, who treated us poorly, who were awful to us. We all have those people in our lives. And what I love about the book of Ruth what I love about the book of Ruth is he doesn't even get a name. Instead, the focus is on Boaz. The focus is on Boaz. And, and here's, guys, take this for what you think it's worth, okay? Look, here's the thing. Forgiveness is so important. And forgiveness is only possible, really, when we turn our eyes to the one who redeems us. We all have those people in our lives that have hurt us, who have cut us, who have been awful to us to varying degrees. It's one of those you live long enough, like somebody's going to hurt you, right? Some of us have probably had people hurt us at a level that is almost unspeakable. And some of us have probably just been hurt by people, generally speaking. But what I was just feeling in this moment is like, man, those people, let them be a so-and-so in your life. Forgive them and turn our eyes to the one who redeems us. Because for Ruth, Boaz is there. It'd be easy to dwell on how awful so-and-so is, but she doesn't. Because Boaz is there to redeem her. And here's the thing for us. We have a redeemer. The New Testament talks about this in many places, and I'm, and I'm skipping ahead. I'm just going to read it anyway. We'll come back to it, Amy. Colossians 1, 12 to 14. We give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can let the so-and-sos that have been a part of our lives rule our lives. And I've seen it happen. Where somebody who did something maybe truly terrible many years ago, it still rules someone's life. And maybe that's you. I don't know. I mean, I can think about there are people in my life I have to continually choose to forgive who did terrible things to me. And so I'm not saying it's easy, but it becomes possible when we set our eyes on the one who redeems. We can let those people, those so-and-sos, run and ruin our lives through unforgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you just 
forget it ever happened and act like it never ever happened. That's, that's not forgiveness. But it is, it is choosing to no longer keep that. To hold on to it. What they did to us. But to let it go. And to forgive them. Now again, that doesn't mean, you know, if, I don't know, that, you know, we just let people walk all over us. Okay, I'm not saying that. But again, we need to forgive the so-and-sos in our life and not let them define our story. Keep them as so-and-so. The other side of this is that we've probably been so-and-so to somebody else. Again, most of us have lived long enough that we've probably been so-and-so to somebody else. Guys, let me just say, if I've been that to you, I'm sorry. If I haven't been there when you needed somebody, I'm sorry. Genuinely. And look, if that's happened, let me know. I will, I will apologize directly for it. Because I know like, I, I can be selfish. I can be narcissistic. I can be self-centered. But I want to be more like Boaz because I want to be more like God. And so we need to learn to seek forgiveness from others. And also we need to learn to forgive ourselves, I think, sometimes too, when we've been so-and-so. <laughs> We need to focus on the one who has shown up and redeemed us, the one who forgives us. All right, that was a long tangent, but an important one. I think it, I think it was necessary. I don't know. It was necessary for me. So here's the thing. I can trust God when I'm betrayed, and I can accept forgiveness when I betray. Now, The short story of Ruth is packed with prayers of blessing that are spoken on behalf of others. And it's interesting because all these prayers end up being answered in chapter 4. Naomi's prayers for the widows, for Ruth and Orpah in verses uh, 8 and 9 of chapter 1, they're answered, at least for Ruth, in chapter 4, verse 10 to 13, where she says, she, she prays a blessing on them. Go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Prayer answered. Boaz's prayers for Ruth in 2.12. May the Lord of God, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. His prayer in 3.10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich, whether rich or poor. His prayers are answered. And he's the answer to his prayer. When he marries Ruth. And redeems Ruth and Naomi. Naomi's prayers for Boaz in 2, 19 and 20. <clears throat> May the Lord bless the one who helped you. 
May the Lord bless him. They are answered in 4, 11 to 13, again, as this marriage takes place, because Ruth, we find, is an incredible blessing to Boaz. Boaz is not just a blessing to Ruth. Ruth is an incredible blessing to Boaz. The witnesses, and we'll dive into this again more next week, so we won't really follow up with this, but the witnesses, they, when they pray for Ruth and for Boaz, these blessings over them, they are answered as we read the story for next week. And again, there's another prayer in the next section. Prayers for Obed. Who, spoiler alert, to use that phrase, will end up being the child that they have. I had to ruin the story there. I should have just left out that prayer. But anyway, they're answered. Here's the thing I was thinking of then. I can trust that God hears my prayers and that he answers them. And that can be a hard thing to do. That's easier said than done. That's really easy to write on a slide. It's not always the easiest thing to do in reality. But here's just a couple of things about prayer. Prayer, and we've said this lots of times over the history of this church, prayer is not a place to be good. It is a place to be honest. We see that in Naomi in chapter 1. She could not have been more honest in her prayers and what she says about how she feels like God is dealing with her, right? Prayer is not a place to be good. It is a place to be honest. And what we see is as we are honest with God, when we read the Psalms, when we see the prayers that David is willing to pray and we see how God moves in his life and acts on his behalf, what we see as David comes faithfully and intensely or Moses comes faithfully or in, and intensely before God, that their prayers are answered. When Abraham comes intensely before God in praise, it moves the heart of God. Prayer can move God to act. And so we should pray boldly. And as Psalm 86 says, we should petition God to incline his ear and to hear our prayers. Guys, have you ever prayed that boldly? Have you ever cried out to God? Maybe you don't say like, incline your ear. You know what I mean? Like, okay, that's not something we really say too often in English. It's a great, it's a great word picture, but like, cry out to God, listen to me, please. Something trivial. I've done this over and over. All of a sudden I've been praying that we could find a house for like, you guys have been praying for us too for like years. I get it. And that's something not that important. I have a warm house. It may be smaller than I like, but it's warm. It's weatherproof. It has a roof. You know, like. But still, I can bring these petitions boldly before God and ask him to incline his ear. And I can trust God even when I cannot understand his timing. And that is a lesson through this stupid home situation I'm having to learn over and over and over. Why is this so hard? And I was thinking about this and just thinking about like, we live in an instant culture where everything is instant. We want it and we want it now, right? Whether that's microwave popcorn, whether that's rice in a bag, right? Like we literally buy rice in a bag and boil it. Like we can't even like, anyway, I'm just saying, we are an instant culture. We want it, we want it now. Amazon takes more than two, you know, if I start getting mad at Mark after a few days when my packages haven't arrived and he's not, it's not even his fault. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't get mad at Mark. But do you know what I mean? We're like, oh, gee, it's been two days. 
you know, it's like, it's, it's like, it's coming from China. You know, you're like, like you know, and, and it's one of those, we're an instant culture. And I think even in prayer and as God moves, we want it instant. We want it now. God, you've taken too long. I've prayed for this like once or twice. But you know what? Even there, I can be like, God, you're taking too long. I've prayed for this for years. <laughs> but one of the things that I think we see as we read the Bible, and I have to remind myself, is that God often seems to work slowly. Ten years. We'll come back to that. Ten years. They waited. Ten years of misery. Ten years of prayer seemingly unanswered. It's almost as if I think God has his own timeline that we don't see or understand. That's my uh, sarcastic. <laughs> and it just so happened, or, you know, chance, chance to pawn. That's my, you know, perhaps God has a timeline that we just don't understand. That we can't see from his perspective. That he sees things that we don't. It's as if he has eternity in mind and not just our right now. One of the things that I think we actually know is that generally when things are done slowly, they're done better. Right? Like, I could buy a loaf of bread in the shop that was made very quickly in a factory. Right? Today's bread today. I could buy, I could, I could buy it in the shop. Or I could make a loaf of bread. Or go to a bakery where a loaf of bread has been made slowly and carefully, where the sourdough has, is real sourdough, and it's been al allowed to work and to whatever, cultivate, what, whatever, the, whatever the term is for that with sourdough, right? And what's, what would you choose? I mean, I'll take the homemade bread any day because it's had the time and the care. And it's, it's like that with most things. You know, even there, building a house. How fast do you really want someone to build you a house? Right? I mean, like, there's a certain, like, you know, you don't want to go too slow, but at the same time, you don't want to go too fast either. I've seen the results of that. I lived in a house that was built in, like, you know, the early 2000s. Okay? Like, I know what it looks like when they put up a house as fast as they can. Right? Corners are cut. Things are done. Right? And nobody wants that, right? We want it done well, properly. And when God is building you, he's going to do it right. Anyway. We want things done right and not just short-circuited when it comes to our spiritual lives. And so, finally, then, I can trust God enough to faithfully believe that his ways are better. Boaz and Ruth show us what it looks like to live lives that honor God, to obey God faithfully. And when you read the story, I just can't imagine that you read the story of Ruth and you're left thinking like, you know, ugh, I don't really like these people. Right? I mean, like, if you read about like Boaz and Ruth, like, are you really left going like, ugh, would hate to know them. Right? Are you left thinking like, you know, I don't know, those religious nuts are ruining everything. Or do you read that story 
of two people living out the character of God, what it looks like to, to image God. And do you go, that's amazing. That's beautiful. That is powerful. Are you left, aren't you left admiring the characters? Thinking, what if more people were like Boaz? What if more people were like Ruth? What if I was like that? You know, and I think that's the beauty of the story is that it shows us what God is like, but it shows us what it looks like when two people faithfully follow God. And you go like, whoa, these people are incredible. How about that? Two people living faithfully for God, it's, it's attractive. It, it's like, I don't know about you, I'm drawn to that. I'm not drawn to Poloni Almoni. Sorry, when I read the story, I want to be like, boo, you know, like, but I think in a lot of ways, he inhabits so much of like the same sort of attitudes that we are tempted and drawn towards without thinking about it. But when we think about it, what are we drawn to? The characters of Ruth and Boaz. And so insofar as they look like God, as they image God, we are called to be like them. People of prayer and blessing, loyal, trustworthy, kind, and loving. And we need to be forming our spirits. And so just kind of coming to the end here. We all want redemption in our lives. Every single one of us. We want redemption in our lives. That's how we started, yeah, talking about that. But we want it bigger than just a momentary redemption. We want it bigger than just the Lion King. It's wonderful that the, you know, Simba got to be king, but we want something bigger than that, right? We can trust that God wants to redeem us too. And not just redeem us. The good news is that it's redemption of the entire creation that God has in mind. Jesus came to redeem his people. Jesus lived perfectly and faithfully. Ruth and Boaz, they didn't. You know? Because they were people. They didn't. Jesus was betrayed by those who should have rallied around him and followed him. Jesus came to bring us back to God, to redeem us from our slavery to sin. We were bankrupt and we were empty. But now because of Jesus, we too are full. And as we read from Colossians earlier, we don't need to just individualize this because what God has for us is more than just individual redemption. He has cosmic redemption in mind all of the world back to the way it was always meant to be. And Jesus will return and he will set things right. I'm actually reading through the book of Revelation right now and I like that would be a long tangent. Um, it's the book of Revelation, of course it would be. Um, but that's the picture, right? The final victory of God over evil, over all the Poloni Almonis of this world where things are set right. So I just want to finish with this one last verse from Psalm 107, verse 2. David says, Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father.